Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. If you follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you may have noticed that I've been posting a bit about what I and others perceive to be a real heating up of the battle between progressive or deconstructing Christians on the one hand and traditional conservative or historic or whatever creedal Christians on the other hand. And I've seen a bunch of accounts uh, which look to me like deconstruction influencer accounts Uh, And the jewel of the crown in this burgeoning movement, it seems to me, is the rapidly expanding career of Elisa Childers. She was one of the members of the CCM band Zoe Girl and also had a solo music career after that. And her book, Another Gospel, has been blowing up. She's working on a follow-up now. Her YouTube channel gets over 100,000 views for every episode. And I'm noticing that this tension between the two sides, if you want to call them that, is starting to look like every other culture war battle in America between left and right, urban and rural, etc. If you listen to this show, you know that I have loads of compassion for the trauma that so many of us have been through. And the natural response after trauma when you're attacked is to bite back. I get that, but it's not for me. And maybe I have less trauma or it was longer ago, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of reasons for that. But I don't want to take part in this. Keith Giles, the theologian, recently released a video entitled Exposing the Progressive Hypocrisy of Elisa Childers. 
I want no part of that name calling. I'm sorry. I don't know her intentions, but I'm going to assume that they're good and I'll meet her arguments as if they're in good faith until I have reason to believe that they're not. Uh, And that is, I think, the Christ-like way to go about something like this. I want no part of the polarization and the tribal markers. Alisa and I actually agree on a lot of things, a few of which I'll mention in this episode. We also disagree a lot, and that's okay. We're both Christians, as far as I can tell, and as far as I, you know, whatever I think a Christian is, and I've said this before, my definition is anybody who says Jesus is Lord and means something significant by that. Sometimes what I mean by that changes from day to day, week to week, but I still affirm it, and I'm sure that she does as well. So I'm creating this response episode, I hope, in the spirit of Jesus, his compassion for the other, uh, in my attempts to not mischaracterize her at all, etc. I will try not to engage in any of my own logical fallacies, and I will occasionally call out where I think she's pulling a fast one here or there. But really, I, I think a lot of what she's saying is correct, and we have different intuitions about how to respond to it. Uh, I'm using audio clips from an episode where she was the guest on another show. That show is called Capturing Christianity. It's an apologetics show hosted by Cameron Bertuzzi. The episode graphic for that episode asks, is progressive Christianity more dangerous than atheism? Now, I've talked about this here and there, where growing up, I sometimes got the impression that liberal Christians were worse than atheists, in the same way that a traitor is worse than a regular old enemy. Uh, Liberal Christians were the wolves in sheep's clothing, while atheists were just wolves. Now, obviously, I disagree with this viewpoint, but the main thing to me is that it appears to be one more data point that this particular culture war is just beginning to heat up. Millions have indeed left evangelicalism, many or most, I believe, for very good reasons. One response to that massive exodus would be to do what David Cassidy did on his recent episode with me, to apologize, to say, I know that we've failed you in in various ways. Here are some of the ways that we've failed you. That's one response. Another response is to add weapons to your culture war stockpile and to demonize the other side. And I'm not saying that Elisa herself is doing the opposite of what David's doing. I want to be clear about that. What I'm saying is your average rank and file conservative, they could either apologize or consider uh, other people's apologies like David's, or they could reject that. They could reject the uh, apology route, and they could rather add weapons to their own stockpile. And I believe that what most of them are probably doing with Elisa's work is using it as weapons to add to their own stockpile. That's what I mean uh, with that analogy, which is maybe a little bit clunky. I apologize. So I refuse to give in to this weapon stockpiling. I will not weaponize myself. I will not weaponize this podcast in a tribalistic fashion. I have actually been increasing my outreach uh, and conversations with conservatives um, to interview them for this show, but also to be a part of Uh, work around spiritual and religious abuse stuff, which you guys know I'm interested in. And this is kind of in that same spirit, I think. I hope to be a part of a group that seeks to make peace and build bridges, if indeed this culture war ramps up the way that I think it is going to. Um, And, and, you know, this, this work on spiritual abuse is a perfect example, right? Like, should I limit my work 
to churches and organizations that are already liberal and only liberal ones? Should I go to like the Episcopals and say, look, I know you guys have a bunch of safeguards in place for not abusing people uh, through your priesthood, but maybe we can slightly make this better. Or do I want to work with like independent Baptist churches that have no infrastructure whatsoever for dealing with claims of abuse? Well, obviously the latter would be somewhere that the work would be more effective and more efficient. But how do I do that? I can't just roll into those churches, my flaming liberal self, uh, and throwing punches about how toxic conservative Christianity is ruining a generation. I'm not going to get anything done that way. I need to figure out how to partner with people on whom I agree partly and disagree partly. That is literally the future of my career insofar as my career involves working on spiritual abuse in the broader church. So I'm starting now. Why would I limit myself to only one half of Christianity? So this is my first act of peaceful (laughs) de-escalation in this war. Uh, If you have seen any of Elisa's stuff, uh, by the way, you don't need to listen to that episode or watch that video. I'm going to play clips from it. You could if you wanted to. I'll put a link to it in the show notes in case you want to watch that first. It's about 50 minutes long, and I'm responding to basically the first half of it, which covers all the basics. So maybe you've seen her stuff. Maybe a friend sent you this episode because you're curious what a real-life, non-judgmental, hopefully kind and thoughtful progressive Christian might say in response to her viewpoints and her arguments, I say to you, welcome. Thank you for listening. Hopefully, this episode can shed some light on some similarities and differences in how Elisa and I see the world, the Bible, God, and Christianity. So I'll be playing clips from this interview with Cameron so that we can hear her exactly in her own words. I've tried not to do any creative editing other than to tighten stuff up for timing's sake. I don't believe that any of these clips misrepresent Elisa's actual views, but I hope that if they do, she will reach out to me or somebody who knows her will reach out to me and I can correct the record. So let's start with the first clip. Well, today we're talking about progressive Christianity and why it's dangerous for society or why it might even be heretical. So tell me about your encounter, your first encounter with progressive Christianity. How did that come about? When this all happened, it would have been about 2009 or 10. Okay. And so uh, I had a a new baby and I was doing some solo music. So a local church invited me to come sing at the church. And from the second we got there, my husband and I just connected with the people like we really never had at at a church together. Hmm. We loved the sense of community we found there. And particularly, we loved the pastor's intellectual approach to the sermons because neither one of us had really ever been exposed to that kind of of Bible teaching. And so that's kind of what attracted me. And at the same time, because I had toured all over the country at virtually every kind of church you could think of, I had kind of experienced the seedy underbelly of the evangelical culture. The what? The The seedy underbelly of the evangelical culture. And what I mean by that is just I kind of saw Christians at their worst and the church at its worst sometimes. Not always, but, you know, we had some bad experiences and there were things about evangelical culture that were bothering me, mm-hmm. you know, just the, the way that we would treat certain groups of people or the legalism that I would encounter and, and things like that, or the way we did altar calls, all kinds of that stuff. And so this church that we were at was kind of addressing those same 
concerns. And it just felt so authentic. And so we loved it. And so in the context of going there, the pastor invited me to be a part of a study group that was very small, very exclusive. And it was in the context of this group that he revealed that he was an agnostic. And so this was different than what he was preaching on Sunday, right. but that, that he just wasn't really sure. And it, so, it almost seems deceptive, right? It almost does, doesn't yeah, it? almost. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Slightly. looking back, it's like I try not to assume people's motives, but it, it definitely, it's hard to get around thinking that because yeah. he was, in fact, he would even say, What's you the know, point of doing all this if you're just agnostic yeah. about it? Yeah, well, I think what was happening was that it was the first time he was really going through a time of, deeply questioning his faith, maybe. Okay. And he was processing that in a group of people. And so so virtually everything I'd ever believed about God and Jesus, and especially the Bible, was sort of picked apart with all of these intellectual arguments. And, and this was at this meeting you had, right? Yeah, For this the, was that a... you were invited a, to. It was yes. like a secret kind of thing. Yeah, and it was supposed to be a four-year class uh, that, that he said it would be like training in seminary or something like that. Okay. So, so I've got a few thoughts here at this point. The first thing that comes up for me is something that you guys actually haven't heard yet as listeners of the podcast, but I, I think within the next month, this episode will be coming out. It's an interview with Joy Williams, one half of that band, The Civil Wars, and also a CCM alum herself. And it would be it will be interesting to think back to, uh, you know, she didn't give a lot of details here, Elisa didn't, but... Uh, Joy gives some details, and I won't spoil too much of them, but let's just say that there was some rear-end grabbing by youth pastors, you know, when she was underage or just overage, uh, touring these churches, and she had some rough experiences herself. Now, I don't know the experiences that Zoe Girl had, but it was three younger women, and, you know, you could guess that there would be some commonalities. I Again, I have no idea if there was sexual assault or anything like that, but it's interesting that they both experienced the 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 negative side of that world. And in this sense, I think that Elisa's right. I have less experience with that seedy underbelly than she does, but I think she's good to call attention to it. Uh, and I'm sure that some of her work actually fights against uh, those uh, abuses of power and influence and and whatever else is going on. Uh, she She will get into – I'm not sure if I play the clip or not – but she did say in the interview, like some of the stuff around altar calls and all this stuff is just kind of icky. Uh, and I agree with her. I think she's right. Um, the next bit here on her story is this pastor guy. And he introduces her. He, he brings her into this small circle to do this you know, kind of thing and, and then admits to them that he's an agnostic and wants to do four years of study with them. Now, even if he meant by the seminary comment, it'll be like, we're all going to seminary together, not like he's the seminary professor, which would be the kindest way to take what he said. If that's what he meant, even if so, uh, I think this was a very bad idea. I would never recommend that a pastor bring in people under their spiritual care, their congregants, into a, a special reading group and then lay it on them that you're an agnostic. Um, I do think that if you are a pastor and you are struggling with doubt and maybe even atheism or agnosticism, that happens. I, I know for a fact that I've got listeners that are in that situation, but there are better people to work that out with. And I would imagine that most of you who do fit that scenario are not bringing in sort of unsuspecting congregants to do that processing work with you. 
you know, therapists are good, trusted friends, maybe friends who have left the faith but are not antagonistic toward the faith, you know, just other Christians that you know in other cities who maybe have gone through this stuff. Those are the people you should be processing that with. And so in this sense, I would actually say that Elisa is the victim of spiritual abuse. Assuming that her account of this event is roughly accurate, that, you know, the facts are basically as she described them. Of course, we don't have this other guy to hear his story, but let's just assume that they are. I would put that as spiritual abuse. I think it is affecting her ability to practice her faith to broadside her with something like that that the pastor is agnostic. I think more care needs to be taken pastorally than this person apparently or allegedly took. So, uh, yeah, I guess at this point I'm just feel bad for her. That's a, that's a horrible experience. Uh, and I, and it, and as we're now about to hear it, it put her into a really dark place. And just like at the beginning of this episode, I expressed my compassion for people who have experienced, uh, trauma in the evangelical church and have therefore left it. I also need to express compassion for the trauma that she experienced, which to me sounds quite real. So let's get back to her story. And and so what happened was after we left, all of this was in my mind. And it caused me to go into a dark night of the soul that I realize now looking back was my own process of what is called deconstruction. And and it's where you start picking apart all your beliefs. And and in the progressive church, this is kind of a big thing that happens, is they pick apart their beliefs until they're almost, sometimes they'll go all the way into atheism, Hmm. sometimes stay there, sometimes come back. But I I was deconstructing not on purpose. I wasn't trying to, but everything I believed had just been thrown out. And for me, because it had to do with the Bible. When I spoke to atheists on the streets, it was like, oh, but but they just don't believe the Bible. But when someone was able to knock the legs out from under the Bible, at least at the time, it caused me to doubt it. Right. It, it, it knocked the legs out of my whole worldview. Again, I, I hear the pain in her voice. I hear the pain in this story. I think that pain's real. I think that she was hurt by this guy. Um, but I also noticed something else. She said, I was deconstructing not on purpose. And I don't know if she understands this or how many other people she's spoken to about their process, but it, it's come up on this show before. Uh, nobody deconstructs on purpose. I, I don't think I've ever met a single person who has. Uh, I think that it generally happens to us. Something happens. Either Uh, An unexpected friendship, uh, a a source of joy and love pokes holes in something we knew before. Maybe it's a gay friend or something like that, or I don't know, someone going through a divorce, something like that. Or it can be great suffering, um, instances of trauma or abuse, loss, uh, the loss of a loved one and the type of responses that you hear from people in your church community and their seeming inability to deal with the the cognitive dissonance and the pain, and they want to spiritually bypass it all away. You know, the, these kinds of things, or you're reading the text and uh, you find stuff in it that you're like, whoa, what is this? Uh, I didn't think that there would be something like this in the Bible based on what I had been led to believe. So deconstruction almost always happens to us. We almost never deconstruct on purpose. And so I would just hope that people who find this sec- this part of Elisa's story to be 
to, to cause them to feel empathy and compassion for her, I would say, great, you ought to. And you should also extend that, if you're being honest, to all the other Christians who have deconstructed or who have, you know, dealt with these problems because it almost, we almost never do it on purpose. It's a, it's the thing you would never want to do. Your whole community is there for, for many of us, our entire families, friends, possibly the tuition we've been paying every year at our Christian college or Bible college. So that's tens of thousands of dollars a year. All that's being sunk into this thing. Why would we want to deconstruct? Many of us are pastors. Our livelihood comes from this when we start deconstructing. It is almost never, never chosen. So let's hear, uh, let's hear this next clip. If the Bible wasn't true, I don't think I would ever become a progressive Christian. I think that if I thought that Christianity was false, uh, I wouldn't become a progressive Christian. I would just probably become some kind of agnostic. And well, that, that raises an interesting question. So do you think that progressive Christians think that Christianity is false? I, I think they've redefined it in a way that if they, if, if they gave you the definition of it, you would say, well, then you're just saying that it's false. And so this okay. is why guys like Bart Ehrman, uh, no, I'm sorry, not Bart Ehrman, um, Bart Campolo, who is Tony Campolo's son. Tony is a, a famous, or he, he technically still considered evangelical, I think, but he's very progressive. But his son went through this type of deconstruction, but went into secular humanism. And, and his point is, that's really the more honest position because what is secular humanism? Yes. If you're going to start that, if you start getting rid of things like the Bible and the resurrection and the virgin birth and, and the atonement of Jesus, if you, if you get rid of that stuff, it's really not Christianity anymore. And you might as well just call it what it is. Yeah. Now it is true that some folks like Bart Campolo, uh, who've left Christianity altogether argue that this is the most quote unquote honest thing to do. And I think that there's a version of that that I agree with. If, for instance, you think that the Bible is a book of fables, that Jesus simply died, that God had no special plans at all for Jesus, did not do any sort of reconciling of God's self to the world through Christ, then, yeah, I mean, you're, you're probably not a Christian. Like, as I say, if you don't think Jesus is Lord in some meaningful way, then you're not a Christian. Now, I would say... I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm very comfortable with that. I hope you would continue listening to the podcast and continue engaging in these issues. And I know that many of you do listen to the show who do not consider yourselves Christians. And I love that you're here. And I find it interesting and challenging to engage with you uh, on relevant topics that come up. There are people in the Patreon group, uh, on the Facebook group that are not Christians, that are actively engaging in conversation. So, in one sense, I'm a little less worried about who's a Christian and who's not a Christian uh, in that sense, right? Um, but at the other end of things, I don't think that Campolo's description here or Elisa's description actually applies to most or maybe even all of the progressive Christians that I know, including many theologians whose literal job it is, is to write Christian theology, so many of us believe some version of biblical inspiration that separates it from, for instance, other works of fiction, history, or poetry. Many of us, or most of us, believe in some version of Jesus's resurrection. Uh, in particular, I find interesting the idea espoused by Dale Martin 
that what Paul describes in his resurrection account is Jesus in a resurrected body of pneuma, a Greek word that he says is kind of like electricity. Of course, we don't have an exact word for it. That's a fascinating take. I mean, I think that there are some issues with like the corpse resuscitation model of resurrection. There are questions around the ascension. You know, does Jesus rise up into the heavens, quote unquote, but really he just going into the stratosphere and then God disappears. And like, it's just not clear. That doesn't mean that I reject the resurrection. Uh, the people, the earliest Christians had resurrection experiences. They experienced the risen Christ. I don't, I have some humility, I would like to say, around how to describe those experiences. But those experiences founded Christianity, the religion of which I'm a part. So many of us believe in Jesus' resurrection, but we have different ways of thinking about it. I'm not so sure about the virgin birth. I know plenty of progressives still believe it for whatever reason. I also don't think it's all that important theologically. Uh, I know it's in the creeds, but it's one of those items that I think that the church has actually disagreed quite a bit. Don't quote me on that. Eventually, I'm going to have Kyle Roberts on to talk about the virgin birth, probably closer to Christmas. So we'll save it for then. And then, of course, you know, uh, she she and Bart mention atonement. And obviously, we talk about atonement all the time on this podcast quite regularly. And there are many ways of thinking about that issue. And some of them are substitutionary, which we will hear from Elisa is a really important part of atonement. Some of them are not substitutionary. And I just think it's it's a basic historical understanding of Christianity that, that both substitutionary and non-substitutionary versions of atonement have been around for the entirety of Christian history. And so I don't uh, particularly worry about that. I would also point to Jesus's words in the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is actually a particularly sticky parable for universalists like myself. Nonetheless, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, and I got to keep it, and I got to deal with it. Jesus tells some of the very religious people who are goats in this case, that is, they are, they are going to the desolation. Uh, they prophesied in his name, but they failed to care for the sick, the naked, the orphans, and the travelers in their midst, that they actually never knew Jesus. That's what Jesus says. And to me, this actually seems to downplay the role of specific belief and doctrine and play up the idea that what we do on this earth for the least of these is a better indicator of our faith anyway. So I'm, that's another reason that I'm less worried about people's various stances on these, you know, sort of intellectual doctrines. There's also just something at base, a little silly and judgmental about telling people that they shouldn't identify as Christians. And I, I would apply this to Bart as equally as I would to Elisa in this case. Uh, it's such that like, we know what the real criteria are. And I don't know that that smacks to me of a kind of colonialism, uh, a kind of, uh, I have a special vantage point from which I can define Christianity. And I don't, I feel uncomfortable with that. So we'll just say that and leave it there and move on to the next clip. Yeah. And we'll talk about that. You also make a distinction between progressive Christianity and historic Christianity. So why don't we talk about that a little? Sure. Well, I, I tried to find a word that would describe the opposite of progressive Christianity. So maybe we can define progressive Christianity and then I'll kind of give you why I chose the word historic. It's not perfect. There's no perfect word to use, but so progressive Christianity is the idea that Christianity itself is progressing. So what I mean by that Hmm. is 
of course we want progress, right? As Christians, we want to progress in our faith. Seems like a good thing. Seems like a good thing. We want to we want to grow in our relationship mm-hmm. with God and We're in our knowledge. We're being mature. We don't want to be infants. Yes. In our, yeah. We want to progress. But there's a difference between us progressing in our understanding of the eternal truths of God mm-hmm. and those truths themselves evolving and changing and progressing. Right. So in the progressive view, what Moses wrote, well, they probably wouldn't even think Moses wrote it, but what the Old Testament prophets wrote about God speaking wasn't really God speaking. That was them speaking what they believed about God in their time and place. Mm-hmm. And and so Peter and Paul, they don't really like Paul very much. They were writing their best understanding. This was Christianity in its infancy. This was the best they could do to understand God in their times and places. And so now we're we're evolving into a higher and wiser view of God. In fact, that's the phrase that one of the fathers of the movement, Brian McLaren, uses, a higher and wiser view of God. We can look at what uh, the Old Testament writers wrote, what the New Testament writers wrote, and we can analyze that and go, well, I think they got this right. don't think they got that right. I think that was influenced by pagan culture. And then we can understand God better now. And so that's what progressive Christianity actually means. This is why you can have two progressive Christians that might completely disagree on the resurrection. One might affirm it, one might not but they're perfectly fine to be in unity with each other because it's really not about the specifics of what you believe. Mm-hmm. It's about growing together and discovering what Christianity is going to mean now in today's world. Man, mutually discovering what Christianity is going to mean in today's world. That sounds like actually a pretty good description of this podcast. That sounds fantastic to me. Uh, I'm going to get to that in a little bit. I want to start with some of the earlier stuff from this clip. So I do think there's a little bit of slippery language here that Elisa employs. Mostly, I think that she gets the definition of progression, progressive Christianity right. Uh, I think she pretty accurately describes us, but I'm not sure why she slipped in the phrase, the truths themselves change. I certainly don't think that God's truth changes. Uh, and I don't, I don't believe I'm out of the norm here. What I believe is that humanity is being drawn closer to God over time through various mechanisms, through various mechanisms, which include the inspiration of the Bible. Um, Jesus said many times, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. One way of thinking about that is that Jesus was reforming the Jewish religion of his day. At, at, at minimum, he was doing that. And we have at least two options once we acknowledge that. The first is that we can say, well, Jesus did reform Judaism and, and launch Christianity and all religious systems once and for all. He, he reformed it all. And we have a more or less perfect account of that reforming. And so all we need to do as Christians is align ourselves with that perfect vision of Jesus as presented in the text, along with the other theological claims from the other biblical writers that sort of you know, spell that out and flesh it out a bit. The other option would be to say that one or more links in that chain are broken. So maybe we don't have a great account of Jesus for one reason or another, or maybe the kinds of things, not only that Jesus was able to say in his time and place, but the kind of things that were able to be internalized enough to be written down in the gospels by the people living then, maybe there's a certain sort of psychic limit, psychological limit to those things based on what could be comprehended at that time. Uh, This would be perhaps why, by the way, in our text, Jesus does not directly address slavery. 
because it's really hard to imagine that Jesus approved of slavery, but it's not in the text. So you might wonder, well, did he have thoughts about slavery? Did, did he literally never say the word slavery or slave? That seems unlikely. It's possible that it just never made it in because it, they could not have imagined a world without slavery at that time. Now that's conjecture. I'm just saying for that would be an example of what I'm talking about. That's at least possible. I don't know that that's true. Or maybe the chain is broken at the translation level or at the copies that the various scribes made over hundreds of years. Maybe there's a broken chain link there. You get the idea. There are multiple places where the actual reforming of Judaism and launching of Christianity that Jesus Christ did might not have made it to us in 2021 America perfectly intact. And even if so, there may have been limits at that time to what could conceivably have made it into the text. Now, it's worth noting that neither of these options assume that God's truth changes. They just disagree about how straightforward it is to get to that truth. So a simple distinction here might be that a traditional or inerrantist Christian thinks that it is fairly straightforward to know the truth about Jesus Christ. And a progressive, by contrast, would think that it is much more difficult to know the truth about Jesus Christ. And I'm in the latter camp. I think it's hard to know. I wish it wasn't. I wish it was easy. But I do think it's hard, which leads into that last bit that she talked about. You know, two progressives who disagree on the resurrection are comfortable to be in union with each other, uh, discovering, you know, what Christianity means in the modern world. Um, because beliefs themselves are not the biggest divider, the biggest deal. To which I say, amen, preach it. As a progressive Christian, I believe it's very hard to lock these things down. So why would I want that to keep me from being in Christian unity with someone else who follows Jesus in their life, attends church with me, takes the Eucharist with me, prays with me, posts on the Facebook group with me, right? Like, Maybe in a couple years, they will affirm the resurrection. Maybe they won't. In the meantime, what do I gain by division? I, now, I understand if you have an organization like an individual church or a Christian university or something that you may need to set up guidelines. We had a small group once that was a Christian small group. That was literally the only requirement. And some of our friends who we loved dearly were no longer Christians and they wanted the group to not do Christian stuff anymore. And they thought we don't, we don't need to do that. We can just talk about ideas. And, and I had to say like, I'm sorry, this is a Christian group. Like that's what we started it as. That's, that's what people are here for. We could have barbecues or whatever and like hang out and socialize and discuss other things. But for that particular group, there needed to be that boundary. I understand that. But in terms of, so maybe there are reasons to not have someone in your particular fellowship. That's fine. That's not what I'm saying. But generally speaking, if I believe in the words of Paul, that all things in the end will be reconciled to Christ, why not be as unified as possible until that moment? This is why I also believe in an open table for communion in the Eucharist. I know that Orthodox and Catholic uh, and Presbyterian, for instance, churches don't don't hold to that open table. It is either only for Catholics or only for Christians or something. That's just not the Jesus that I get in the Gospels. I think that Jesus was 
radically open to anyone, especially people that seemed outside the boundaries of exceptional of acceptable religious and social practice. Um, so yeah, in that sense, th- this bit that uh, Elisa says, uh, I I say preach it, <laughs> and so that's something that obviously uh, she and I disagree on, which is which is fine. Okay, let's get to this next uh, clip of hers, where she is referencing the Christ hymn in First Corinthians, kind of the oldest. Uh, doctrinal statement of the very, very early church. This was the belief of the early Christians. Like Paul didn't make this up. He recorded this. And so what you find in that creed is that Jesus died for our sins. I mean, it seems so simple for some of us, but, but that's there, that Jesus died for our sins. And that's connected according to the scriptures. He was buried and resurrected according to the scriptures. And then Paul says before he puts the creed down, he says, this is the most important thing. This is of utmost importance. So to me right there, that says that there are distinctions between essentials and non-essentials. This is the most important thing. And so in that creed, what united the earliest Christians, you have the, the atonement of Jesus, you have the resurrection of Jesus, and it mentions according to the scriptures twice. So their beliefs were inextricably linked to the authority of the scriptures. And so that's how I would define the earliest version of Christianity. Now you can extrapolate from there. Right. Well, what does it mean Jesus died for our sins? And for that, we we go to the earliest Christians writing about it. We go to the New Testament writers. We go to what Jesus thought he was doing. Uh, we go to the early church fathers. And, uh, you know, there's all these different theories of atonement. And there were different theories that were more emphasized throughout church history than others, of course. But But you have that concept of Jesus dying for my sins in a substitutionary sense from the earliest iteration of Christianity, which is largely something that the progressive church denies. So again, we're we're kind of back to atonement, but I would just say that the phrase died for our sins is open to a lot of interpretation. It doesn't say Jesus died for our sins as the Paschal lamb replacing the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament, you know, of the whatever, uh, pre, pre-promised land, you know, it's not, it doesn't give all that detail. It doesn't give a substitutionary framework in the text itself. And so if we're going to say that, if we want to say that Christians have to hold to that original Christ hymn, well, okay, that might be fine, but let's not add a bunch of other later, like Calvinistic interpretation to that. Let's just say that you have to affirm this in some way, but there are many ways to affirm it. Now, she also talks about uh, the scriptures. This was all according to the scriptures, and they they saw the scripture as authoritative. Well, okay, but first of all, scriptures obviously does not mean the New Testament because the Christ hymn was written before there was any New Testament written. They are talking about the Old Testament prophecies that early Christians believed were about Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. They're not talking about an inerrant view of the New Testament, right? And if we further, if we want to know how Jews uphold the authority of the Bible, of their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, we might be surprised to find out that they actually do quite a bit of wrestling with the text that looks to me a lot more like a progressive reading or a progressive hermeneutic than a conservative one. And they've been doing that since Jesus's time, as I understand it. 
Now, Pete Enns, I'm not the expert here. Pete Enns has done really good work on this. He's an actual Old Testament scholar. He's the co-host of the Bible for Normal People podcast and author of many books. You could listen to any episode where they interview a Jewish scholar, and you'll, you'll hear some of what I'm talking about. Now, Elisa is right when she says that many atonement theories have been batted around and emphasized at different times. But then I think she kind of pulls a fast one and says that from the very beginning, a substitutionary understanding was present. Now, I'm not an expert in this. I'm not a theologian. But from the 20 or so conversations I've had with theologians who know about this and church historians, this is historically not true. Uh, Christus Victor, as I understand it, was the primary atonement theory in the early church, which said that Jesus descends into hell upon his crucifixion and defeats Satan and death directly on our behalf. And it is in this way that Christ's death and resurrections is for our sins. So he, he robs sin and death of their power through his crucifixion and resurrection. That's Christus Victor. Now, this was the dominant theory in Christianity for the first 1,000 years of the church, as I understand it. And penal substitutionary atonement, uh, which is the kind of Calvinist view, doesn't come around for another 1,500 years or so after this Christ hymn. So I think we should be very careful about putting that kind of interpretive language back onto it. And ransom theory, which is earlier than penal substitutionary, uh, wasn't popular until the 4th century, but was never as popular as Christus Victor anyway. So I I don't know. This feels a little bit to me like we're smuggling in the current popular sort of Calvinist understanding, which is dominant within American evangelical Christianity. But we're, it's not actually true that that was the main one early on. So that's a little bit of sleight of hand. I'm not saying that she did it on purpose. I don't think she's trying to be deceptive, but I... I would want that record to basically be corrected. Uh, And I think you could refer to my episode six, I think it was, on atonement theories with Bonnie Christian, who researched all this for her book, Flexible Faith, uh, and she she goes into that. So next clip. And and so it's it's dangerous, first of all, because of how influential it is. It's dangerous also because of the beliefs that the movement is bringing into the church. And so I can give a quick flyover, basically, of the progressive views of the gospel and the cross and the Bible. Yeah, let's do that. So we'll start with the Bible. So I kind of mentioned before, progressive Christians read the Bible, not really in an authoritative sense as the authoritative word of God, Mm -hmm. right? And and again, if we look at historic Christianity, yes, Christians have argued about like tons of things since the beginning of our history about interpretations or uh, things like that. But generally speaking, if you look through church history and back to the earliest versions, Christians and early Jews, I mean, more ancient Jews, they believed that the Bible was God's word. It's God's words to us. They believed that it was inspired by God mm-hmm. and that it's authoritative. So, you know, we might debate over the nuances of inerrancy and things like this. But generally speaking, the church has always viewed the Bible as authoritative, as inspired and the word of God. And and the progressive paradigm challenges all three of those. So when you look and see what the prophets said in the Old Testament and say, well, that wasn't really God speaking, well, then that's really challenging that the Bible is God's word. And when you think about how that, you know, the implications that has for inspiration, you're kind of in the same pickle there. Because 
if God didn't really inspire them to to say those things, then and how could they be? How could accurate? it be inspired? And then how do you figure out which parts are inspired or not? And then of course it can't be authoritative because if it's not inspired by God and it's not His Word, of course it's not going to be authoritative. Okay, lots of good stuff to respond to here. But first, a moment on that word dangerous because quote it brings these beliefs into the church. Now, given the story that Elisa has told about her own experience. I could see how some of these beliefs in that context were actually for her harmful and dangerous. But I think that it's still a logical step to then say that they are by their very nature dangerous. Does that make sense? For instance, in the 1800s, many conservative Christians argued that abolitionist teachings and abolitionist readings of the biblical text were dangerous for the church when slavery was legal. Now, they were dangerous for something all right, but they were dangerous for white slave-owning Southern culture and the economy. They were not dangerous for the church. They were actually liberative and God-glorifying for the church. And the black church, you know, going through that abolitionist movement and culminating in the civil rights era is, for me, the single greatest example of Christian ethics and morality in American history. So those those views were not dangerous. Now, Elisa would say, well, those don't. Uh, go against this historic Christianity that she's talking about. And that might be true. That's a fair point. I'm just saying that there are times when beliefs feel to some of us in certain contexts dangerous in and of themselves, but actually they're only dangerous to the way that we do things, right? So I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't mean to lump Elisa or anyone else in with, you know, <laughs> slaveholders or whatever. I, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. Please don't take me that way. Right. But we, we have to be careful about extrapolating from personally painful experiences like she clearly had, uh, even abusive situations like she had to the broader situation. And so Elisa and I just, we just disagree on which beliefs are actually dangerous for the church in the long run. And I'm happy to disagree there. But actually, this is where I also want to push back on my fellow, some of my fellow deconstructionist style progressive Christians who sometimes will casually label huge swaths of Christian doctrine and teaching as, quote, toxic. And then they assume that all of these beliefs themselves are always or usually harmful for people, that it's really the belief itself. But I think that as Elisa's case illustrates pretty clear, beliefs themselves are not always doing that work. A lot of times it's context. So many beliefs that her pastor brought in, a, in what I think is an abusive way, are beliefs that I hold. I think they're true. But when they were brought to an inner circle reading group by a pastor who then lays on them that he's actually an agnostic all this while, uh, that had abusive results, right? So we need to be careful about separating out beliefs we agree with or disagree with, rather, from beliefs that are always harmful. And then we separate those out those beliefs out from people's actions and their intentions. We separate that out from context. You know, all that stuff is, is complicated. Uh, but to her point about how these beliefs and arguments devalue the sort of clear authority of the Bible, she's absolutely right about that. This is indeed a massive problem for Christians. Uh, I wish that it wasn't a problem. I wish that I didn't have reasons to devalue the clear authority of the Bible. 
I wish the Bible did not record Yahweh commanding the Israelites to murder every man, woman, and child in Canaan. I didn't put that in the Bible. I received a Bible containing that story. I wish the Gospels didn't disagree on what happened after Jesus' death. How long was he around? What, what was the ascension like? Who came to the empty tomb? Did they tell people or did they run away and say nothing? I wish the Bible didn't disagree about that stuff. I didn't put that in the Bible either. I received a Bible with those apparent contradictions. So what do we do with the Bible we actually have in our hands and in our traditions? This is what leads to a more progressive view of the text for many of us, precisely because we don't want to throw the Bible out. Let me say that again. We end up with a progressive hermeneutic, a progressive way of reading the text, so we can keep the text. We want the Sermon on the Mount. We want the crucifixion and resurrection. We need the parables. I need the parables. I want Paul's visions of cosmic unity through Christ. I need the beautiful and biting calls for justice from the Old Testament prophets. Uh, prophets. We want all that stuff. I desperately want communion to mean something, and it does for me because I have been able to find a reading of the text that doesn't force me to condone genocide. Elisa is also right that this kind of stuff inevitably leads to a kind of house of cards falling apart situation. But just maybe that's because it is indeed a house of cards. So to say that something is dangerous to your house of cards, well, yeah, it is. But you also shouldn't be propping up your house of cards anyway, right? So that's a disagreement that we have. But she also makes a quick rhetorical move. She says essentially that if we doubt that any particular parts of the Bible are accurate, then we essentially lose the authority of the whole thing. Now, it's unclear if she really says that or if that was just implied. So maybe she doesn't believe that. And I don't want to put that on her. Uh, perhaps she thinks that like there's legitimate forms of scholarship that bring in doubt and that don't, you know, call into question the whole authority. So I'm not trying to put words in her mouth, but I, I certainly, I picked up on that from her and I've heard it many, many times elsewhere. So I'm going to respond to it here. I just think there are two interesting elements to this idea that, you know, if we lose one brick, the whole wall falls down to borrow a, an image from Rob Bell in Velvet Elvis. Number one, it will be a never ending process, which to Elisa sounds horrific. And I think that, yeah, it is kind of horrific in certain ways. It challenges a lot of our narratives about our lives and our faith, but that doesn't make it false. It just makes it kind of horrific. And as it turns out uh, in my case and many other cases, there is indeed real Christian life on the other side of this scary chasm and, but that doesn't mean that all the problems go away. As I'm fond of saying, it's discernment all the way down. We are constantly discerning. We are constantly growing in wisdom as we get older. And I would say as a progressive Christian, the church writ large is also growing in wisdom, not just individuals, but a little bit more on that uh, to come. And then number two, I just have come to believe as a progressive that there are no shortcuts to knowing truth in the world. I've given this plate analogy multiple times in the podcast that I used to think that this plate in the middle of the room was Christianity and everything in the world would fit on that plate. And then I learned, or it seemed to me that like, actually there's a whole room of other things that don't fit on the plate. 
And what I need to do is rather than try and fit everything onto the plate, I need to take the plate up and use the plate as a lens to see the room. So Christianity is a way that I see the world in all of its complexity rather than a way that I reduce the complexity of the world into something that I can manage. So I wish that this wasn't true in a lot of ways, but it just seems to me that it is very hard to know things in the world. It just is. So, so how can I be a Christian and also admit that it's hard to know things? One way is to be some kind of progressive Christian. There's my little pitch. All right. Next up we hear it's dangerous because of the way that progressives think about the cross. The cross have you heard the phrase cosmic child abuse? I have, yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah. that's really big in the progressive church is to view the atonement as cosmic child abuse. And so there's largely a rejection of substitutionary atonement. Now, some progressive thought leaders will say, no, I still believe that what Jesus did was substitutionary. But when they start to parse it out, it really loses all sense of meaning as far as Jesus actually, uh, you know, paying the price for our sin or... or, or taking our place in any meaningful kind of way. And so that's kind of the progressive view of the cross, is that God didn't require the sacrifice of Jesus, uh, but that Jesus submitted to our bloodlust and basically let us crucify him uh, to show us how to forgive people. And so it, there's, there's not really a strong sense of substitution in their view of the cross. Well, here, Elisa and I just totally agree uh, she's right in her description and we just disagree that this matters. I just don't think that it's heretical or problematic theologically, even if I were more conservative to lose or de or de-emphasize the substitution part of atonement. I've already kind of talked about that a little bit. I could be a perfectly orthodox Greek, Greek Orthodox Christian and just focus on crisis victor. And that would be totally fine. Uh, Eastern Orthodox don't have a particularly high view of substitutionary models. And most Christians for a thousand years did not primarily think in terms of substitution. So for me, this seems more like a battle on behalf of modern day Calvinist influenced Protestantism than it is a battle on behalf of historic Christianity. That's my two cents. Now, it's really not about the afterlife. It's about now. And uh, they will critique the typical evangelical paradigm of, oh, I just want to give my heart to Jesus so I can go to heaven. And I, and I think you and I would both say, well, yeah, that's way oversimplified, and, and that's, not, that's not the gospel I would preach either. But there's almost no sense, though, of what's going to happen in the afterlife. It's, it's all about here and now and political reform and, and economic reform and green energy reform and, and this becomes the gospel. These good works almost become the gospel. So it, in essence, it's a very works-based gospel. Okay. So this is, uh, by the way, the last clip. So these will be kind of my final, my final words here. Um, I would say that all the discussions and debates around universalism within progressive and deconstructing Christianity would actually be a pretty good counterpoint to the idea that there is, quote, no sense of what's going to happen in the afterlife, end quote. Um, I've spent a great deal of time talking about the afterlife and judgment and salvation uh, and how far atonement reaches and just what is being redeemed in the universe through Christ. Uh, I, those are usually the most popular episodes that I record and that I release. And that's usually before I started doing some of the end times research, which was a bit more unique. Universalism is something that I was asked about in basically every 
podcast interview that I was ever asked to come on for and be a guest. So I don't think it's true. I just don't think it's accurate to say that progressives don't think about the afterlife. It is true uh, that we tend to focus on this life, though, more so than conservatives do. I thought it was interesting that she mentioned political and economic and green energy reform. I do think I get the sense of a little bit of sort of cultural right wing Christianity seeping in there with the mention of green energy. You know, whatever happens in the afterlife, I just can't think of a single good Christian reason to oppose, you know, well-made renewable energy sources or proposals. There could be bad proposals, you know, maybe cap and trade won't work as good as a carbon tax or, you know, vice versa. That's fine. But theologically, uh, (laughs) this is God's creation, right? Uh, and so I don't know, I, I guess I just, I, I have a little bit more to say about this, but I want to talk about the good works bit here. So it, for, for Elisa, it becomes sort of a, a religion of workspace righteousness. Now I do think that she's onto something here in the progressive sphere. I think this is true, actually probably less so in progressive Christianity and more so just in progressive politics and sociopolitically on the left where a certain kind of leftism can become super legalistic in the way that right-wing conservative legalism suffocated so many of us growing up. We on the left can become moral perfectionists precisely because we believe that it's our job to bring heaven to earth with all our reforms. I think that she's really onto something here and that, that can be an immense amount of pressure uh, and the, and really, it, it can be graceless. It can be free of grace. And I actually think that kind of a basic Christian sense of forgiveness, uh, of God taking on our sin, is quite a powerful antidote to that kind of um, perfection, moral perfectionism and legalism that we can often find on the left. So yeah, it exists. And I, I try and I push, a, I push back against that stuff pretty regularly, you know, if you listen to this show. So I don't disagree with that. But to label progressive theology as works-based, I think is to apply a label that just doesn't really fit because nobody in the progressive camp thinks that we can earn our salvation, right? That It feels more like that's a buzzword. It's kind of like red meat for the base that conservatives will latch onto. Ah, works-based salvation. I'm not accusing Elisa of doing that, but it may just work out that way that she gets good feedback when she uses that term because that's a term with a lot of purchase on the right. But, uh, you know, we're not thinking that way. Like a lot of us are universalists. Uh, so if we're universalists like myself, it doesn't make sense to talk about works-based theology because nobody is going to hell anyway. I don't believe hell exists. Uh, and the thing that Luther was dealing with was like grace or works. He's, he's dealing with a lot of reforms that really needed to happen in the Catholic church around, you know, the selling of indulgences and fealty to like earthly lords and stuff that would turn into spiritual benefit to get you out of purgatory and in all that crap. Right. So that's kind of what Luther was getting at. And I agree with all of that. And I, so I, I think to just to throw works based on this is, is just a, it's just a non sequitur. Um, but the larger point here is mostly true. Uh, progressive Christians, especially those of us who live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, which produces the most carbon emissions and trash per capita in the history of the world, and a country which exports all of that culture and consumption pattern globally, 
leading to irreversible damage to God's creation of the planet Earth, we do tend to focus on this world. Uh, because not only has it been ignored in the evangelical Christian, Christianity from which so much of us come, it has actually been – we have destroyed the world. We have been kind of the lead, uh, at least cultural lead actors. I know we have fewer people and and therefore fewer emissions than China and India and all that. But in terms of like bang for our buck, we've done the worst job of anybody in the world. And and that American way of doing things has has not only been not critiqued by the dominant forms of Christianity, it's actually been buttressed often by bad theology, by out-of-context Bible quotes about dominion over the land and stuff like that. So I'm actually a little surprised here, and I, I would love to talk with Elisa in person about this because I, I wonder there might be more common ground than it appears like because she really does seem to have some pretty solid critiques of evangelical culture from her Zoe girl touring days. And I'm, I'm a little surprised that this wouldn't be one of them. So, but maybe, uh, maybe it is, or maybe I just haven't heard her talk about this at more length. And, and if we did, uh, we would come to more agreement. Um, one final note here. I, I just would like to say that the idea of bringing the kingdom here and now, right. End quote is not a progressive idea. You know, it, it's from the Lord's prayer. Uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Is, is kind of the, kind of the central action phrase of the Lord's prayer. This is how Jesus taught his disciples and by proxy us to pray. And so if we're praying for that, it's reasonable that we would also really worry and think about enacting that as part of our faith. Um, and some of this is just logical consequences. If you, if you come to believe that the doctrine of hell that you were given brought up was not actually a primarily biblical doctrine, but was like popular imagination that started with Dante, well, you're not going to focus so much on saving souls from hell because logically, why would you? You think that that was probably beside the point. And so a lot of this difference in focusing on the here and now is that those of us on the left or on progressive Christians have seen the way that the Bible was actually misused to, to preach a kind of very psychologically, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Convenient gospel, uh, that both told us we're in, they're out and made us feel good and made everybody in our tribe feel good. That, that should have been a red flag. And eventually it was for many of us. And also that misused the Bible, to really just kind of play fast and loose with how how clear we can be on where someone is going to spend eternity. And once you come to see uh, how the views of that have, have changed over time and you, you see these early universalists like Gregory of Nyssa challenging those views and you don't see anything that looks like what we see today until Dante, then you just go, oh, like maybe that's not – that maybe that just doesn't make sense. And so that's not a good place to put your energy anymore, but that's just like a logical consequence, right? Of, of changing theology. So the video goes on. We covered about half of it. Um, we're at an hour now on the episode. I think that's plenty. Uh, I think we pretty much get the gist of it. I just wanted to give a kind of a basic response here. I try to do it in a compassionate and reasonable way. Uh, as I said, Elisa's not my enemy. Uh, she is my sister in Christ. I would love to, to speak publicly with her about this stuff I'd, or just privately. I would think that would be fun, too, uh, and probably mutually beneficial for us. But 
I do want to just reiterate that, like, I'm not all about, I'm not about this culture war. I'm not about picking sides and picking tribes and we're going to fire back. Uh, we're going to expose their hypocrisy. I'm just, I'm just not in for that. I'm not. Um, and so we'll see if there is more of this kind of stuff to come. Uh, if there is a role for me to play as a, as a peacemaker, as a bridge builder, I would love to play that role. I would relish it and enjoy it. And I look forward to more and more partnerships between myself and Christians to my theological right, specifically on the, the issue of spiritual abuse. And I hope that we can make great progress on that issue. Um, no big announcements this week. There's a Patreon. If you want to support this show, maybe some of you are new. You can listen to other episodes uh, in a few days here. Apparently, it's current events week on You Have Permission. Paula Swindle is returning to the show to talk about the Ravi Zacharias uh, revelations through the lens of religious abuse. Uh, that was a very good conversation. So hope you're looking forward to that. That'll come out on Monday. All right, guys. Peace. Be well. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.